Hi, and welcome to episode 234 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Anna Noble dearman joining us. Anna attended Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans and graduated in 2012 with a Master of Occupational Therapy. She has extensive knowledge and experience in pediatric orthopedic conditions, including splinting prosthetics and equipment management from her time spent working at Shriners Hospitals for Children. She became a certified lactation counselor in 2021 and is currently working towards international board certification by completing the requirements to sit for the IBCLC exam. She entered the space due to the lack of resources in her community. She's currently starting her own private practice, Prosper Therapy and Feeding Solutions, where she hopes to provide the utmost quality feeding care in her area. She's very passionate about the field of occupational therapy and hopes to inspire many of her colleagues to advocate for what they do. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untether Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified myofunctional therapist, feeding specialist, podcaster, business owner, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, airway, tethered oral tissue, and pediatric feeding therapy space. If you're new here, I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to spread this message far and wide. If you've been around since June 2019, thanks for being a loyal listener. As we jump into today's episode, remember to listen with correct oral rest posture. Tongue up, lips closed, teeth apart, breathe through your nose. Let's get started. I am excited today because I know we are going to deep dive into a topic that is so relevant right now. But before we go there, I do want to just have you share a little bit. You know, everyone just heard your bio, but I want you to share like who you are, what you do, how you got into your specialty. Well, my name's Anna Noble. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, I've got lactation credentials now, and I'm working towards all of my requirements to sit for the IBCLC exam, which hopefully I'll get to do in the next year or two. I know, exciting. So I entered this space, um, started out my career at Shriners. Um, Y'all may have heard that already. I ended up working at an inpatient rehab in Bossier City as a therapy director for a little while there. So that was good for me to learn a bunch of the medical side of things. Um, I feel like that's really impacted my now career in pediatrics mostly. Just being knowledgeable about certain medications and whatnot has been really, really helpful. But the reason I entered the space is because my second child came out and was having a very hard time with breastfeeding. Um, It really hurt. Um, I can remember being in tears at three weeks old. Her second, I think they saw her two weeks out for her follow-up, her pediatrician, which is a whole other story. But we were seeing a med ped in town, and she hadn't really reached back her birth weight yet. At this time, I had no, like, real knowledge of anything. You know, I was like, oh, this is fine. You know, she was sleeping through the night when she came home. You know, all the red flags that... You know, I tell parents of now, but, you know, he encouraged me to wake her up to feed her. We did that. We got her weight back good. I knew about lip and tongue ties. I asked him if he thought she had one. He said no. I kept looking in her mouth. I was like, hmm. I called the lactation consultant, the only IBCLC that we have in town, to come see me. At this point, um... You know, she helped me with positioning. And while she was there with me, we had one really good latch. Never had that again. She knew I was an OT. I'm not sure if maybe that intimidated her some. Um, I was asking questions about the ties. She wasn't sure either. We had a dentist in town at the time that was known for doing releases. And so I went to see the dentist. That dentist recommended that we do her upper and lower lip, interestingly enough. The dentist told me that she had a posterior top, but the dentist didn't recommend 
uh, releasing it, the dentist felt like it wasn't impacting anything and that it looked good. So we didn't. Mm-hmm. Went back home, continued to have issues flashing, continued to have issues um, with my milk supply. I look in her mouth again. I mean, her mouth was just so small and tight and started playing around, found all four buckle ties. It's like, is this, you know, anything here? So I went back to her, um, the dentist, (laughs) back to her dentist. And um, basically the dentist was like, yes, they're there. I can release them. Okay, well, here's where, you know, I was working a job that, we didn't have leave. So, you know, I wasn't being paid a paycheck. It was like seven fifty per arch. Oh wow. So um I think I got like a two for one deal for the the two lips. My insurance did come back and pay me back later. It was just one of those things where I really couldn't justify offsetting the cost of the buckle ties that I didn't. Our breastfeeding journey ended at four months. I got pregnant again at five, five months postpartum. So here we are this time around. I'm like, and I'm one of those people that, you know, I'm really, I would love for everybody to have breast milk. Okay. I wouldn't call me crunchy or anything, but you know, I just, I know the benefits of it. And I just think that it's the best. Um, and if at all possible, I wanted my third child that was well in the way to have the best. Third time's a charm, right? Okay. So I go to my current employers and I propose that I take the Healthy Children's Certified Lactation Counselor course. Talk about it for a little while. They agreed. And thank God they allowed me to do that while I was on maternity leave, completed the majority of it. Knowing what I knew of Isla, my middle child, who had a grade four, got low class four with bone notching on her upper lip, I look at my buddy boy, um, buddy boy, um, his name's Gray. I look at his, I mean, his is definitely, you know, it, it was a four, like the cotlow four too, um, but his flanged well. At that time, I had not had like tox training, and I suspected that he had a posterior tongue tie because we struggled a little bit. But eventually, you know, we it got better. The thing with him though is that he wanted to feed every hour, and I mean, every hour. My output was fine at that point. I knew, you know, I needed to pump every two hours when I went back to work, that sort of thing, um, and. Once I got my credentials, I started seeing patients. Well, I brought him to see the dentist. Everything's good. All right. Everything's good. Awesome. His frenum is like <laughs> at least four or five milliliters thick now. Wow. Um, it's a thick one. I have to make sure to brush around it really good. Um, but anyway, everything's good. Um, so we didn't do anything, but we did successfully breastfeed until 14 months old. His latch was terrible. We had to supplement with maybe one, maybe three fourths of a can of formula the entire time he was bottle feeding or nursing. So I I consider that a success, but yeah, so those are, you know, two examples for me, my reasoning entering space. Well, once I got my lactation credentials, the people that were referred to me, had some sort of tongue dysfunction nine times out of 10. You know, these were the ones that were low weight gain, pain, clicking on the bottle even. So I'm looking and I'm like, okay, maybe I should do some exercises with their tongue, you know, just to see if I can build up strength. So start doing lateralization and lateralization and (laughs) extension. and you know, just seeing what outcomes I'm getting and realizing I have no idea what I'm doing other than sending them to the dentist that would release them. And then they would come back and still have issues. And I was not able to help them get a deeper lap. Sure. Here we go again. I'm like, oh gosh, what do I do now? Well, I do Autumn Henning's thoughts course. For me, it was very validating. 
hey, I knew I was supposed to be doing something. <laughs> but um, also, gosh, I've learned so much now. And knowing that the pre-therapy, the body work, all of the components that need to happen, implementing that into my practice. Wow, that's made a huge difference. Well, here we are. Now I'm working with people's babies' mouths. Well, now people start calling me about their bottle feeding baby. So, okay, here we go. Here we go again. Um, you know, I'm like, okay, now what do I do? I think I did, is it John? John Pishoff's, um course for the top savvy therapist. Then I'm like, okay, well, this whole body work thing. We, I live in Monroe, Louisiana. We have a great little town. Um, we're separated by a river with West Monroe, Louisiana. You've heard of Duck Dynasty. That's where they're from. So uh, it's a great place to live. It's a great place to uh, raise your children. Um, Monroe is very different from West Monroe, even though we're separated by a river. And in saying that, our access to medical care, we had a few companies that used to be headquartered here, State Farm being one of them, um, CenturyLink being one of them. And since they have moved out, I feel like our medical community is suffering because we don't have specialists that want to come here. You know, there's nothing really here for them that's uh, appealing. Um, so I say specialists, even down to body workers. You know, we have two female chiropractors that do body work that, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, and I now that I'm opening my own practice, I hope to have time to reach out to them to learn more about what they can do for me, but they don't have TOTS training. Um, I referred out to one of them for a bodywork session before this child that I had seen for four weeks, and I'm sorry, not four weeks, four months, and was still having problems with feeding that had a posterior tongue tie, but he had some body tension, and she goes for the session before she the day before she's going to get a release. Oh, that's not a tongue tie. That's body tension. Oh, interesting. Have you seen him eat for the last four months? At any rate, thanks for collaborating with me before you go off and tell my patient that. But that's just, you know, kind of where I am with that. But um, so in saying all that, I guess I'm kind of digressing here. Um, I found a body work course for better, breast, better breastfeeding. Um, and I've started implementing that into my practice now. And I'm seeing like really good results with that. Um, so I'm kind of, I think at the end of my journey here, um, I've been able to connect with a small, another small rural community in Richmond Parish. Um, there's a dentist there that has been trained to do releases as well. And she's very collaborative um, in the sense that she sends them to me before she does anything, which is great because the other providers in our community do not do that. Um, and so that's been very beneficial for the patients that I'm seeing. Um, and I've been able to open up my own practice as of today. Um, and <laughs> Thanks. Um, I've, uh, I'm still currently at my former practice as well. They've been super supportive for me, um, you know, in all the training that I've, I've received and I have nothing but good things to say about them. Um, and I'm sad to, to leave, but I just found that the environment, um, at a pediatric clinic is not always appropriate for an infant that's trying to feed. So, um, I just felt it best for the patients that I see and their outcomes if I was kind of on my own in a in a place where there's not another kid having, you know, a difficult time transitioning from, you know, his speech therapy session to his OT session right at the door in the hallway. So so that's kind of where I am now. 
And uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I'm, I mean, I'm excited for you because it does sound like a lot of it's coming full circle for you, right? And so many of us start in these spaces. I think every single person I've interviewed in the past couple weeks came into the space they're currently treating in, whether they're craniofascial sacral therapists or craniosacral fascial ther therapists. Oh my gosh, let me tongue twister today. Um, whether they're OT, whether they're SLP, whether you know they're in the Maya or the feeding space, every single person I've been chatting with like recently all got into this space because of like their own children and then the mm -hmm. patients on their caseload. And then, you know, it's it really becomes like your work. And it's like, we were talking in the last couple episodes about how it's been a catalyst for a lot of us coming into our specialty. Like our own children have been that catalyst for us. And, you know, a lot of us go like, I don't want another parent to struggle. Like I did. I want the resources to be available in the community. I want to be at that sounding board, the person who like lets the parent speak what their gut is telling them and not gaslight them, not tell them or make them think that they're crazy or that this can't possibly be going on or that, oh, you know, this is normal because we all now know, like, just because it's common, it's not normal. So I, I love you sharing your story because it totally came full circle for you. And I also love how you like detailed, like when you were like, okay, and now we've got this group of patients and that meant I had to like deep dive into another component. And then this component and then that component. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. And it's, I think for anybody listening, who's not familiar, it sounds like, oh, it's just a course here, just a course there. No, like this is like a very big time and financial investment in every single individual aspect that you <laughs> mentioned. And you're like, you've dove in, you know, you're, you're an occupational therapist first by trade. Right. And then now with like, you're going for your IBCLC, you already have your CLC. Um, you're going, you, just you took the tots. Yeah, feed the peds, you know, Todd's training yeah, with Autumn. Sure. I love Autumn. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, even to go in and take more like body work focused courses so that you know, like what to look for, what to maybe even do in your sessions and or who to refer to. Right. Cause I think that's a big part of it too. If you even have the people around you, like, you know, you, you kind of alluded to, you don't really, or you at least don't think you do at this time. Um, yeah. It's just, there's so many moving pieces and one thing I do want to dive into, because this has been coming up a lot lately, just with some turmoil happening in the uh, myofunctional therapy world amongst one of the larger organizations and members of, um, not that you're part of that, but I think, you know, we were talking before we, we hit record today and everybody has, plays a different role, right? In a sense. And when it comes to whether it's myo or pediatric feeding or whatever. Um, but I think that there is, at least for SLPs and OTs, like me being SLP, you being OT, we can definitely have a conversation around that uh, because you have a role, you have a seat at this table and a very important one when it comes to advocating for assessing and treating these pediatric feeding cases, whether they're breastfeeding, bottle feeding on solids, they are eating with a tube, you know, whatever may be going on. You know, I think a lot of people hear OT and they automatically go, oh, child on the spectrum with a sensory processing disorder who needs to advance the number of foods they eat. And right. I mean, right. It's, mm -hmm. So it's not just that. And one of the big things that I always like highlight is, you know, we can't separate sensory and motor. So like, let's stop separating SLP and OT because like we need to work together, but also there's a lot of overlap in what we treat. And then if we have different specialties or different things we've dove into, you know, beyond like the the table, you know, or not the table, surface, the, the surface level stuff, right? Then that's where you go, okay, it may not be that it's just SLP versus OT. It may just be the individual who may have those credentials too, because it's in their scope, but who's done further training in this area. So all that said, um, you know, will you share with us so we can kind of just like lay this to rest for people? Like, what is the OT's role in tethered oral tissues? Like, you know, I know OTs are qualified to assess and treat TOTS um, or children who present with tethered oral tissues, but can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, okay. So I just said that, you know, I finished your, your Feed the Peds course. Well, that all kind of arose because I was seeing kids that had reattached that were starting their solids. I was getting referred kids that were picky eating and I would look in their mouth and they would have a Coralis type one tongue. What do I do with this? This kid's three. This kid's two. You know, at what point, like, where where do I go with this? There's sensory stuff going on. There's this kid was a NICU grad. This kid was 
you know, um, eating stuff just fine. And now he's not, you know, I went, so I was like, okay, I'm going to take a deeper dive into that. Well, then I was getting referred kids that were 12 that had a Corliss type one and needed a release. And so I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to try the myofunctional route. So the first thing I do is go look at how to become a COM. A com, is that what y'all call them? OT is not mentioned on the site at all. I'm like, well, this is odd. So what do I do? My happy little self writes in, hey, I'm noticing here that you are um, allowing SLPs, RDHs, dentists. Is there a reason that OT is not included? And can I apply? And I get an email back from the director. And I don't remember who this person is. I'd have to search the email. But basically, it was like, hello, um, you would have to prove that's in your scope of practice. Huh? <laughs> oh, man. You need two letters of recommendation. You have to show that in your curriculum that you covered the, um, I guess, I can't remember exactly, uh, maybe something like anatomy and physiology of the head and neck or something like that. Show that your coursework, like, you know, covers that aspect of it. And um, I'm looking at this like, what the is this? Like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I go straight to my practice framework. I'm like, I knew it. We had updated it since I graduated OT school. But, um, you know, um, I'm looking, I'm looking. And sure enough, I find it um, where... It's listed, and I'm looking it up here, too, under occupation, swallowing, eating. Description, keeping and manipulating food or fluid in the mouth and swallowing it. Swallowing is moving food from the mouth to the stomach. Hmm, that's interesting. So it's right there for everybody to see. And these supposedly well-esteemed, educated people do not know this at, from our profession um okay well that's interesting and so I kind of got mad a little bit <laughs> and this is um kind of where my whole my whole thing is like of course we're involved we're we're OTs and I feel like OTs have always been um kind of the profession out of all the therapies that are least recognized that we do the most um, if you think about it, we overlap with not only speech, but physical therapy as well. Um, we're looking at your daily occupation. That could be anything. You could be a surfer. You could be a baby that, you know, all you can do is crawl. You know, you could be a 65-year-old woman that had a stroke. And all you want to do is bake some cookies. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, there's so much that so many areas we can tap into. We look at, um, leisure activities, rest and sleep. Um, gosh, I mean, I could go down the, the framework here. Um, I mean, you've already said like what you've already said covers my, yeah, I mean, because so. you mentioned sleep. Rest, right. right? Your rest posture. Exactly. You mentioned swallowing, prepping the food to swallow. That is what we do in Mayo. You just live, like literally well, listed everything. And two, like posture, postural, right. yes. like even in your core area. I mean, that mm -hmm. all supports everything up here. Which so, you can, by the way, which you can work on, but traditional, like myofunctional therapists, if they are not PT or OT, it's not in my scope to address like core postural instability or like the hips or the pelvic tilts or right. any of that. I might talk about it and screen for it, but like I'm not assessing it to the point of diagnosis and I'm not treating it. I'm referring to my colleagues and the same goes for RDHs and dentists, right? Like, right. you know, I, well, I, yeah. I can go with sensory, sensory yeah. concerns. Who's, who's mm -hmm. the one that's, that people are looking to for that? It's the OTs. So in, in some sense, and no offense, we're more qualified yeah. to do it than an SLP or an RDH or a PT. So yeah. it's just kind of disheartening to see, here we go again. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, like anytime 
there's a movie and the person has to have therapy. Occupational therapy is hardly ever mentioned. I think there's like maybe one movie out there where they mention the OT. Um, newspaper articles. I've even been called a PT. Like, you know, it's just, it's just how yeah. it is. Yeah. It's okay. We get called speech teachers, even if all we do is feeding. So yeah. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> but no, I, I think that you have a, a really valid point though, because there's a couple big issues going on right now. And, you know, some people know about it, especially if they're involved in the IAOM, if they are a member, if they've taken a course, they're hearing it, they're seeing it. They've, it's been going on for multiple years now. Um, one of the things that happened was the board of directors removed SLPs and OTs from the list of who, and they added by the, by the way, which was not on the website before then they didn't have a separate section on infants and then like toddlers. And they added that. I think that maybe it got added at a certain point, but like SLPs and OTs were listed as individuals who you would refer these, these age groups two, right? This age group two, along with maybe there's an IBCLC involved if they're breastfeeding or some type of lactation, you know, counselor or whatever, and other professionals listed. Well, they've removed SLP and OT and they've replaced that with COM, which is completely <laughs> illegal. It is completely illegal. It is misrepresenting individuals' ability to work with these children. RDHs and dentists are not licensed to do feeding therapy. And if we are working in a child's mouth or on their face when they are under the age. No, let me back up. A dentist, right, has a license to be in the mouth. I'm not saying that they, you know, I'm not arguing that. RDHs work in the mouth too. Fine. What I am saying is when we are working with like birth to four, right, cognitive, thinking cognitive age, because myo, as I often say, is really for a child who is at least, a, has at least a cognitive ability, not chronological age, not like, oh, they're four years old. No, they can think, act, and, and um, you know, exist at at least a four-year-old level cognitively. But oftentimes kids aren't even ready until closer to five and sometimes not even six. So there's that whole disclaimer, right? Under that age, it is pediatric feeding therapy. What we do when it comes to tethered tissues and myo, upper airway, you know, oral prep phase, bolus, all that stuff, this is pediatric feeding and it looks so different at this age than it does with a five-year-old. It looks different than it does with a t an older child, a teen or an adult. It is completely different. We can't just adapt what we're doing to these younger ages. No, it requires a license, the license of an SLP or an OT and arguably even a PT because they have feeding in their scope too, um, especially with when it comes to like oral phase. So I mean, this is something I'm so super passionate about because this has been an issue. And it says COM, which, which basically opens it up to anybody with a COM, which could be currently SLP. Uh, there is one PT. Um, I believe there's only one so far that's gotten a COM. And because for the same reason as OTs, they just don't allow PTs to take their courses or get certified. Um, and RDHs and dentists, mm -hmm. which I'm sorry. I love my RDH colleagues and my dental colleagues. And I have a lot of friends and work with a lot of really great individuals in these, in these, um, who are RDHs and dentists who do, you know, work in their scope, just like I work in mine. Unfortunately, the board of directors and some of the big names making these decisions are working out of scope. And there's a lot of big issues going on behind the scenes, which we won't dive all into, but this is one of the reasons why I started a myo course back into, I launched a myo course in 2021 because the IOM has been like self-imploding for years and it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I don't, everyone says, oh, it's the gold standard. The gold standard of what? The gold standard of, of keeping uh, licensed professionals from treating the patients that they're qualified and licensed to treat, but then allowing non-licensed individuals to then touch those patients that they're not licensed to treat? Like, that's the gold standard? Sorry, but no, right? And, and so, yeah. So, like, when you say that OTs, you know, are qualified and maybe even, you know, more qualified in certain situations, yeah, like, you guys have a lot of knowledge and 100% should be in this space, in my professional opinion. And I've, I'm an AOTA provider. My company provides CEUs to OTs and to SLPs yeah. through ASHA. <laughs> Yay. And, you know, and part of it is because I was like, holy moly, why don't we have OTs doing this? You guys need to know this information. These patients are sitting right in front of you. You could be working on this right now with, along with the other stuff you're already doing. And when we're talking like peed feeding, our littlest ones, it's you're already doing it. It's just a matter of like adding a different lens and maybe adapting a little few other little things in your sessions of what you're already doing in pediatric feeding to 
encourage nasal breathing, to encourage proper oral rest posture, to encourage proper chewing and swallowing. But again, so many of us are already doing that because we are licensed to, and those of us who are trained to do it are already doing it, which I know I've said 15 times already in the past two minutes, but it doesn't seem to be sinking in. So anyways, that's my little rant today, but, and I don't know where we'll be several weeks from now. I know like while we're recording this, like this is the day before the board, um, everyone's voting for who's basically going to be on the board and they have eliminated seats on the board of directors and the, the entire board and not the board of directors, but the entire board is now been made smaller. Um, and they've only elected, they've only put, uh, moved one SLP onto the board. Everybody else is already aged. So now there's all this like turmoil between individuals oh on online because everyone is feeling like this feels very calculated and it feels, you know, like because of, and I, I want to put out this disclaimer too. Again, I love my RDH colleagues. I love my dental colleagues. I don't, this is not the profession as a whole. Unfortunately, there is a group of bad apples, if you will, <laughs> that are doing this. And at the end of the day, I, I want to stay out of all the politics. I don't want any part in this, but I can't stand by idly and not voice my opinion when it is causing misrepresentation of credentials and leading to um, potentially harmful behavior with patients. Right, right. I mean, this is where, you know, it becomes a legal issue because misrepresentation of credentials and what someone can do from a nonprofit organization per their website, you know, that's where we start to get into, there's, ma there's maybe they say it's not malintent, but it looks pretty malicious to me. Yeah. You want to do this work, go back to school and get the license. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, so I know that you and I both agree, like OTs are qualified, highly qualified, especially when you go and take the courses. And, and again, that's why I opened it up to OTs and PTs because I was like, we need a certification that allows you all to take your license that allows you to do this and learn this information. And if you want to get certified, great. If not, hey, here's the course, right? Like, let's go help our patients. At the end of the day, that's the goal. Um, but so often, I agree with you, I see OT left out of the equation. And, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about for a few moments before recording too was how there's this discussion online in a group right now about, you know, oh, like we really got to advocate for our profession and we need to go do X, Y, and Z. And, and I was like, I think SLPs and OTs need to be advocating together for our mm -hmm. profession and for what we do. Because again, there's just a lot, when it comes to feeding, there's a lot of overlap, right? So anywho, that's my whole spiel. <laughs> well, validating to know that there's turmoil and, you know, I don't know. Maybe it'll resolve one day to where OTs can easily apply. But yeah, it's just, I was just kind of shocked and taken aback. Like, what? Yeah. Well, and I think that's also why there's other individuals who have created other courses and certifications. Mm -hmm. You know, that said, there are a lot of courses that just let anybody take a Mayo course and let anybody practice Mayo without yeah. any of these credentials, which is also scary. This is a it, medical, like we can bill insurance for this as SLPs and OTs. Yeah, we can bill this under feeding. We can bill this under feeding. And then some of the other work you're doing, you know, I know you guys can bill under your, your OT codes as well, because I have OTs in my practice. So I know what that looks like, especially if you're working on core strength and stability and, you know, some of that stuff, you know, my OTs may be working on various things and they have even more flexibility than I do as an SLP to bill different codes to insurance. Not that it gets the best of reimbursement, depending on where that may be going, but we're private pay. So, you know, we, we just try to help our patients with a super bill the best we can. Um, but I do think that that also opens up a whole nother conversation because there's actually courses where they're teaching, you know, non-SLPs and, and OTs and PTs and basically how to bill for this. But you can't. It's completely bogus. You can't if you're not a medical professional who has this license. So you can't yeah. use our codes, you know, right. which, which I think actually makes it more challenging for those of us who are able to use these codes because that's confusing to insurance, which is already a total shit show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. For sure. And like yeah. some of those codes are listed for, for OTs and speech only anyway. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. Well, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. Like 92526, right? right. We, only we can build that. 
I don't know if PT can or not. Maybe they can, but I know SLP and, and um, OT can, but that's it. It's only like yeah. our code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then as far as like diagnosing goes too, you know, I think there's some of the other things that I think are coming to light that, you know, need to be discussed as well as the medically complex population, mm -hmm. whether it's a child or an adult, because a lot of these patients are not appropriate for traditional Mayo. And maybe we can, again, adapt Mayo to their interventions. But if they're coming to us, like you said, if they've had a stroke or let's say they have a syndrome or they have something, right, you know, going on, there's always more than an orofacial myofunctional disorder. That may be present and that may absolutely be something we should treat them for. And maybe, you know, maybe a professional who's not an SLP or OT, like maybe a dentist or an RDH can absolutely work with that patient. But beyond the OMD, beyond what's going on in the orofacial complex, that needs to be treated by another provider. And right. we're seeing, I, I think, you. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten an infant that, um, from the re release provider prior to the release that had a lot of other medical issues going on and that some of them I still haven't sent for the release because it wasn't appropriate for that child. And just think about all of them that fly under the radar, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very disheartening. I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking all the kids that go on with, you know, plagiocephaly or, you know, torticollis. And those are just, that's just skimming the surface. I mean, I'm talking the ring of Alicia, like all those things that are missed. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of have this like rule in my practice where, just because a parent comes and says, oh, we're going for a release and I want to have my child's, you know, tetheral tissues released. Well, what does function look like? Like to your point, like let's assess function and see, like, obviously I can't decide that and you can't decide that. And when they, when it's presented to you by a release provider, then as a parent, you get to decide yes or no. Right. But you don't get to walk in and say, release my child. I mean, you can, it doesn't probably not going to go anywhere. I can't tell you whether or not a release is needed, but I can tell you if the tissue's tight, I do diagnose. Um, I just can't say that you need a release for sure. And, and my goal at the end of the day is to avoid one if we can. I would love yeah. nothing more than to avoid a, no matter how minor that surgical procedure may be, it's still a surgical procedure. It's still, you know, some people call it trauma to the body. It's trauma to tissue, even if it's a tiny little area. I mean, a, a cut or a scrape on your body is trauma, right? So when we start to look at it through that lens, I think that we have to remember that like people first, these are people and you're going to rock their freaking world. If you just go and release this child and this family's not prepped, the baby's not prepped, the, the adult's not prepped, whoever, whatever the age, there has to be preoperative work. My favorite is here. We're going to show you a video while your child is getting their procedure done on how to do your stretches. <laughs> I'm like, come on, we got to give them a little more preparation there. How distracting would that be trying to watch this video while you know your child's having a procedure done? Yeah. I just, mm. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> I know. It's like before we put our foot in our mouth. No, I'm okay. I'm good putting my foot in my mouth. I'm good. Um, no, I, I really, I think this is a huge issue. And I think that we've dedicated a lot of time on this podcast over the years talking about this issue because it keeps coming up. It, it, it hasn't been fixed yet, right? This is still a problem that we have, unfortunately, not been able to solve. And so at the end of the day, like if, it, if a provider, a parent, a patient hears at least one episode here or there from this podcast and feels that much more empowered to be like, you know what? I heard that like we need to prep for this release before we go for the release. Like we're going to hit pause and we'll come back to you. Like we're not saying no, we're not doing it. We're just, it's just no, not today. Right? Mm -hmm. Like it is okay to say no, not today. We're not ready uh, because that should be a team approach. And the issue that I take with it is even when we have pre-op, when we have prepped a child, Sometimes feeding gets worse before it gets better. We don't know what that's going to look like until it happens. And that's something that we we have to tell parents. There's inflammation. The child's going to be a little uncomfortable. They're going to have disorganized feeding because now they've got this, you know, their tongue is free, if you will, and they don't know how to use it because it was tethered. And so while we've prepped them, we prepped them with the anatomy at the time 
And now they're going to have to adapt to their new anatomy, which is why we're going to try and teach them as much as we can before. And then we're going to go right back in there and continue that work so that we can hopefully shorten that window of disorganized feeding, swallowing, right. you know, transferring milk, solids, whatever. Um, so I think it's so critical that people understand, like, we're not just trying to tell you to spend more time and money. We're right. telling you you're wasting your time and money by going for a release without doing this other work because most of the time it doesn't do anything because you now just have a tongue that's sitting mm -hmm. on the floor of the mouth. And, and, and I will say it's more so with the tongue. I've seen this more with the tongue than like yeah. the lips or the, the cheeks. But, you know, it, it gets worse sometimes and it gets yeah. so much worse. And like why rock that boat if you're not going to even know what to do? And then you call frantically because now your child's not eating well at all. And they're, you know, sometimes these kids are feeding great. Sometimes they weren't feeding great. It doesn't matter. We see it in both populations. And you know, I'll, I'll let you speak and I'll turn this back over to you. But like, I think well, my life because this is yeah. exactly when I stopped talking and said, okay, I'm just going to start talking now. This is exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. So you just took all the words out of my mouth. Um, I was just trying not to like, you know, go on my rant about it, but absolutely. Go there. <laughs> worsening after. And the parents aren't prepared for it. So they're yeah. thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've, I've yeah. done this procedure and it's not worked. And then they go into this frantic panic. And then the next thing you know, they show up in my office and I'm like, here we go. Because the child had no pre-work done. Yeah. Um, that tongue's going right back down where it was. It's already partially reattached. And then I'm having to tell this parent that. And it's just not fun for me, number one. And then uh, obviously not fun for the parent or the baby because it is trauma. It's not trauma only to their mouth. It's trauma to them. <laughs> They remember yeah. this stuff. They remember yeah. it for a long time. And, well, and the interaction, right, between the feeding dyad, there's like, there's some trauma there. There is definitely an impact in the relationship and the connection. And like, if you, I mean, you're an OT, so maybe you can speak to some of this more too, but fight or flight versus rest and digest, you know, if we're not going to make progress if we're stuck here. No, 100%. Was it a little bit of like polyvagal theory? Like, you know, the baby's going to feed off how mama's feeling and when mama's feeling frantic, the baby's going to feel frantic. Nobody's going to relax. Tension's going to increase. Feeding's going to be worse. You know, mom needs to be prepared mentally for this. And, and a video in the waiting room is not doing it. No, <laughs> definitely yeah. not. If anything, arguably, it's probably increasing that like fight or flight because it's like, oh my oh, gosh, yeah. I'm already anticipating my baby's not, my baby's going to have a react, you know, response to this, that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on back there. Like they're already worried. And now they're, you're going to give them work while they're worried. Like the whole right. idea of pre-op two is because some kids only need a couple weeks and other kids need months. We don't know that right. Until that child is sitting in front of us. And exactly. part of doing that pre-op work also empowers and educates the caregivers so that they're able to take what they're being taught and feel really good about it. Like we're in each other's mouths. I'm like, do it on me. You don't have to do it on your kid. Do it on yeah. me if you want to, right? I'll do it on you. Like, let's see how it feels for you so that when they do it on their baby, they're confident and they feel really good about it. And they don't think they're going to hurt their baby because guess what happens when your baby's crying after a release? You're going to be like, I don't want to make it worse, right? And the parent's kind of going to like back off because they're afraid of hurting the child or, oh, you know what? They finally, they, they were crying. They stopped crying. Not to say every child cries, but you go in their mouth and they just had a procedure, they probably don't want you anywhere near it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And, you know, and this is not to like make the whole experience sound horrible and, 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 and you know, I don't want anybody to be afraid to go yeah. into this if that is something that you need. The yeah. point is like, if you want it to be a calmer experience and one that you feel really good about and one that you feel like your child benefits from, that pre-op is necessary. It's, it's not, it's non-negotiable. And honestly, when families are like, we're not doing that, then we're like, we're not working together because yeah. you're setting all of us up for failure, but it's going to be hardest on you. And right. I don't want to see you do that to yourself and your child. So maybe like, we're not the practice for you, which I don't want to turn people away. But if you're not willing to do the work, then don't do the release. Right. Exactly. And one of the things that I want to do is go through it with the parent make sure they know how to properly do the stretches, make sure they're comfortable with doing it, give them tips and tricks on how to do it. If the baby's fussy or crying, you know, just reassure them. I give them my cell phone number. I let them contact me at all hours. You know, 
sometimes you just need that support person. And I didn't have it, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, my way of giving it back. Yeah. Well, and I think that the other thing that you touched on earlier too, which is a big theme here on the podcast is collaboration. Because I do think at the end of the day that the dentists or or release providers, whether it's an oral surgeon or whoever, I don't think they're releasing to cause harm. I truly do not. No. But also, yeah. But if like your ego is so big that you won't have a conversation with me about collaborating on patient care and creating a protocol for us to work together because you're too busy or you feel more important or You've, you've been doing this much longer than me or whatever you, you it is because I've heard it all. You know, unfortunately, we can't just say, well, I don't want to work with you because sometimes that may be the only release provider in the area or it's one of two or three, right? So it kind of becomes tricky to be like, oh, well, well we just won't refer there. Well, okay, what if a patient ends up going there anyways? Like, we have no control over that. So it's, you know, while you're not going to change a provider, at the end of the day, I'm like, look, like, I want to refer to you, but in order for us to do that and have this collaborative relationship, like, can you give me 20 minutes of your time so that we can sit down and like cash out what I, you know, basically a plan and a system, if you will, doesn't have to take long. Um, because I, you know, I've had some of these providers on here who have these, these systems and they're beautiful and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. They already exist out there. It's like, go listen to an episode of, you know, with some of my release providers and they go, they detail like, what's required step one, step two, step three, before they'll ever go for a release. Um, so anywho. <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely admire those who collaborate because ultimately you're doing what's best for the patient, not for your practice. I feel yeah. like some of the release providers feel like they're doing their patients a favor by not having them come in for a second visit to have it done. Um, after their consultation, they'll just do it then. Um, or maybe that they are busy and they don't want to have to block out time again to see the patient later to do it. Um, and I understand that, I guess, to an extent. But like you're saying, if if you don't have the time to carve out for me because you're too busy, like that, that really is kind of not the way I want to be anyway. I'm actually, yeah. um, I just discovered through your Feed the Peds along group that um, one there's another OT, yay. Um, in Western Air, across the river, that um, that is has the TOTS training and is doing some of this too. And I'm actually meeting with her next Friday. So, like, I'm not above, you know, a, you know, collaborating with even a colleague to help get this done. I mean, it's all about the patient at the end of the day, um, not about me or my practice or or anything like that. You know, I just want to be able to approach the providers in our area that aren't um, aware maybe or um, aren't willing to listen. Um, And maybe if we do that in a united front, they might. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that whole collaboration over competition thing that you're, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking to here is so powerful because like, why did we even get into these professions in the first place? to work right. with patients, to help patients. Maybe we can't, we got into this with a different specialty or subspecialty under our licensure mm-hmm. in mind and we've changed course, you know, fine, right. whatever. At the end of the day, we all got into this because we wanted to work with humans and help humans, whether they're mm-hmm. pediatrics or adults, right? And so mm-hmm. I think so many of us, like, and, and I do truly believe that's true of individuals who go into medicine, period, right? They want to work with people and they want to help people. And I think unfortunately, you know, at least in America, the way that our healthcare system operates, it's just moved so many of us, not not me or you necessarily, but like, you know, I've worked in the schools. I haven't worked in a, in a hospital or an insurance-based private practice. I've only been in, in or um, yeah, I've only been in private pay, private pa- practices, like one prior to mine. But I see from all the private practice owners that I coach that have moved out of other facilities or that, you know, own a facility and they do take insurance, I see what happens. And I see not that this is happening in their practices, but I see how hard they fight you know, reimbursement and they fight to get, they advocate for what they're doing because in reimbursement so low, it impacts who you can pay, what to, how much they can, you know, invest in themselves to even learn a specialty area and how much you can invest in your employees, you know, and, and the hospitals truly are the ones that have the upper hand and can bill whatever they want for whatever they want. 
um, which is like, okay, fine, but then allow everybody else to do the same. You know, it shouldn't matter what lo- where you're located and where you're providing these services. Because again, at the end of the day, I think it's just, it drives the way therapy, it changes how therapy is done. And well, I know that it's- view their profession as well because okay for example how much is school nowadays like a Um, university college yeah like going to occupational therapy school okay we're moving to the doctorate all right why so somebody else can make more money what is that going to do us any good for we can't write scripts we can't diagnose we'll never be able to why do we need a doctorate it's to fill somebody else's pocketbook. But in turn, what you're doing is you're going to start an escalation of people not going or a de-escalation, I guess you'd say, of people going to OT school because you come out with all this debt, but yet we cap out at a certain salary because our reimbursement rates aren't good, yeah. right? SLP and too. then we have job dissatisfaction. You have this low salary. How are you going to better yourself? How is our How are our OT is going to better themselves when they don't have enough money to spend on a specialized CEU. Where does that money come from? You know, um, so I see a lot of therapists getting stuck in a rut. They'll go on occupationaltherapycu.com for $100 a year and get their 15 CEUs that they need and then stop. I mean, I'm not trying to brag on myself. I'm, I'm done this so that I could help my patients this year, but I probably won't fix it continue doing this many CEUs this year, but I've done like over 60 this year alone. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, just now, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in some of these occupational therapy groups online too. I'm just discouraged about joining the profession. I've got all this debt, you know, I make $60,000 a year. I'm like, like, how do you survive? How does our profession survive? I feel like we're very under, under appreciated. And then you're going to change to a DOT and make it even harder, you know? And so now I feel like in the coming years, there potentially could be a shortage of us. And then we're going to be, again, overworked, underpaid. You know, I'm just, I'm trying to think of ways to advocate for our profession, whether it's reimbursement rates. Um, You know, Medicare in Louisiana is probably one of the lowest in the country. Speaking out loud here, but what do we do? Where do we go? Right. 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 No, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes down to money, right? So it's whoever is uh, running the show up there and making the determination of how much gets reimbursed based on the location, not the code, not the amount of minutes, but the location in which Mm -hmm. you're providing the same type of therapy. And like, look, I understand that it might take more money to run a hospital than it might to run a smaller private practice, but that's irrelevant because they all have individual groups within. So people come at you with like all this, like, but you got to consider this and you got to consider that. Fine. Well, then have some kind of a skill where it makes sense because it doesn't make any sense right now. And you're basically pricing people out of being able to take insurance. We can't mm-hmm. accept insurance if we can't keep our doors open and put food on the table for our families, which is one of the reasons why my practice has always been private pay. But we work, we try to help our patients. We give them super bills and we will try to advocate for them to get like a gap exception, which means that they'll get paid at the in-network level, but they have to front the money to us and then submit on their own to get reimbursed by their insurance at that in-network level. Um, then there's sometimes where actually they're out of network benefits, reimburse them higher than if they went in-network, which is completely opposite because it used to never be like that. But it's I've seen that, I can't tell you how many times in the past eight, nine years of having a practice. So, you know, I think also people just don't know how to play the insurance game. Patients, Mm -hmm. when I say people, I'm talking patients. Um, And we give them guides. We're like, call your insurance and ask them all these questions. They're going to tell you that like none of this is guaranteed and that's true. But do your Mm -hmm. research, like know what you do have available. And then especially in your area, if there is not another person who has the specialty that you have, your patients, you know, whether you're in network or out of network should be getting reimbursed at the highest in network level allowed because, you know, so I share that in case someone else is listening where they're like this, because I know the insurance thing is like such a big conversation and I'm, this is as far as I go in that conversation. (laughs) I don't have a lot of, I've never been in network. Um, but I do think that we, at the end of the day, like I advocate for my patients in the way that I'm able to, and in the way that I know, and if I can get them reimbursement or at least help them, I should say help them 
you know, get themselves a reimbursement because they're paying for that insurance plan or they have some kind of an employer-sponsored insurance plan or whatever, then, you know, we will do that. Um, But it's still, you know, it's still, it's not a lot compared to other other professions like you were sharing. I think OT and speech are very similar in having some of the lowest reimbursement rates, unfortunately. Um, So, yeah, that's... Yeah, and given the importance of our role, it's just like I mean, you need to be able to speak and breathe and eat. Yeah. I mean, what's what's the number one thing you need in life? Airway. You need your airway. You need to be able to breathe or you know, and then the second thing after that is eating. So mm-hmm. the fact that like the, the professionals who like obviously there's respiratory therapists and others who deal with the airway, but the fact that like these are two big things that like people come to us for and that it makes it makes no sense. Like make it nice make sense. I might have to get like a little um, rally going. There you go. I love it. Yeah. The majority of my my area is rural. I can never say that word, right? Gosh. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Rural. I know. And um, uh, a high percent is, is Medicaid too. So, you know, I'm here to serve everybody, not just the select few, you know. Um, but yeah, reimbursement. And then, they'll, then they can come back and take it back at any time too. That's what's so crazy. I, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Absolutely no sense for like absolutely no reason. Oh, wait, give me all that money back because you didn't put the right time in. And you're like, um, but I did. And they're like, but you didn't. And we're like, it looks like you treated that patient at 3 a.m. Really? <laughs> really? Like, I'm serious. No, I, I've, I haven't heard about like that, which it doesn't surprise yeah. me, unfortunately. Um, I've heard of, of them coming back and asking for money back for like overpayments, which, okay, fine. I get that. But also it's so hard to, I think, for people to track like you're usually not getting your reimbursement, you're usually fighting for it to even get paid as a practitioner who's providing insurance-based services. So the fact that like you get a check and then you have to like go cross-check your books to make sure that they sent you the right amount of money or that whatever. It's I, I've heard so many interesting stories where, you know, and then other times where they've just said, nope, give us the money back to the patient XYZ. And you're like, that has no bearing on my practice. Like go talk to the patient or go talk to those other providers. Like they used my services first and you know it was the order of how it was billed by which practice and it's just so convoluted and I don't think people realize how deep rooted the issues are again unfortunately but um so do you take do you take insurance in your private practice or are you private pay what does that look like for you um a little both so I'm thinking I had four patients scheduled today through your private pay um and then I'll do the super bill thing but after talking to you, I'm thinking about going ahead and reneging on some of these contracts and just do a gas pay altogether. <laughs> you know, I it's it's hard, right? Because like you said, you want to be able to serve your community. And I, you know, I, I don't know. I think again, like it, maybe it's worth a try and you yeah. see how it goes and you can always back out. Some of them, I have heard of some insurances reimbursing at higher levels and being easier than others. And then I've heard of others just being complete nightmares. So, you know, yeah. let, I, but I, it's, it's all hearsay because I've never been in network. I've only been on the out of, you know, out of network side yeah. of things. So don't, don't do anything based on what I share because it's all hearsay, but. <laughs> well, you're learning, huh? Did that sound oh, yeah. Oh yes. So so where can everybody find you if they're like, oh my gosh, I live I live close to you. Like uh, where's your practice? How do they get in touch with you? Well, I just started Prosper Therapy and Feeding Solutions and I'm off North 19th Street in Monroe, Louisiana. I have a website, prospertherapyla.com, but I have not let it go live yet. Still kind of working on things. Uh, things have been, like I said, a little, little wild for me. I'm still at my previous job too, and I'll be back and forth for a little while. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm ready to, I'm really ready to start collaborating with other people. Cause as I tell my patients, you know, as all physicians are not equal, all OTs are not equal, all SLPs are not equal, you know, 
We all have individualized training. Um, some may have more than others. You know, I, I do this, you know, um, I can, can I do all the other things in pediatrics? Absolutely. I've done it for the last six, seven years. So, I mean, I'm not above just, you know, treating general pediatrics either. It's just that I feel like there's so many out there that need the lactation and feeding services at this point. Yeah. So I love this. I'm excited for you. Um, it's obviously so needed in your community. And so I love that you you took the leap and you're doing this. And so, you know, these episodes live on. So even though at the time of recording, the website is not live, it will be in the show notes so that everybody can find you in the future um, once it does go live, you know, in the near future for you. And yeah, congratulations. It's so exciting. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you so much for joining me today. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you found value in this episode and want to hear more of these Myotots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode on your social media platforms. You can access free resources and all I offer at HallieBalkin.com or pop over to at HallieBalkin on Instagram to get all the latest updates. 